What's up, everyone? Samir Azizi here. First of all, just wanted to say thanks to everyone who listens and watches my show, my podcast, the Azizi podcast. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. Subscribe to my podcast on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, any kind of platform. If you will hit that subscribe button, I'd really appreciate that. You know, you don't want to miss any cool people that I'm going to invite to my podcast and talk about, you know, different stuff. And uh, yeah, but overall, just thanks for listening and thanks for all the feedback that you are leaving in the comments and DMing me and all of that. So I really appreciate that. All right, without further ado, my next guest, Kuran Bhatia. He is a four times Emmy nominated former HBO producer and on camera talent, host of the Ask the Experts podcast. Please welcome Kuran Bhatia. Kuran, how's it going? Hey, how are you, man? Good to good to speak with you. Yeah, likewise. Uh, it's funny. I feel like we're buddies for a long time, but I never actually met you in real life. And I don't even remember how we connected. Like, Well, so I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, were you in New York? Uh, were you wor- working with Ali Alkmedenov at one point? Yes, yes. We talked about, um, uh, there was like Joshua Ruiz fight that like a week before. Uh huh. So I was for that there, and for the Triple G fight there as well. Yeah, yeah. So on the undercard, I think it was Triple G uh, versus Steve Rolls. I think it was. And no, no, no. no, no. So it was two different events in Madison Square Garden. So the first week it was yeah. Uh, June first it was Joshua Ruiz, and June six I think or seven it was Triple G Rolls. So two main events. Right, right. But uh, so I think I met you at the undercard. Uh, you were you so no, at the press conference for Triple G Rolls uh-huh. because you served as an interpreter. Yes. Uh, when I got to interview Ali Akhmedov. Now, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. Ali, Ali, Ali Akhmedov. Yes. I, you, I believe, served as our interpreter because I was at the press conference. This was at Madison Square Garden during fight week. But I, uh, did we talk? I don't think we talked because uh, I feel like we've met through just like texting on Twitter. Because we might, you might have seen me, like, but I was just working. And so... Well, so I have the interview actually on my YouTube. It's a private link right now, but I'll send it to you because I interviewed Ali and then you okay. served as our interpreter, right. uh, which was great because obviously I needed, I needed the interpreter. Um, mm-hmm. So, so that, was, that was the uh, beginning of how we, how we met. And then, of course, I've seen all the good stuff that you're doing uh, with your podcast and, and all the great work you're doing. So, yeah. So, yeah. In any case, and then I remember um, your podcast came out, Ask the Ask Experts, and the first episode was on uh, on actual Joshua Ruiz fight, and it was like three hours long, and you, <laughs> and, but I listened to all of that. It took me probably three days to listen, but uh, like the content was so cool because you've talked to people that I've never, like that was exactly what I wanted to hear, like people from the TV how do you say it? TV station, TV wagon, like what, how do they yeah, try the, to the production them? world, right? Yeah. Production world, like the business, the behind the scenes, yeah. man, it's so exciting. Like, and I was like, wow. Like, and then I think you, you like, there was like several different ones and they were like so behind the scenes. And I like never heard anything like this on the podcast. And I was like, completely like, wow, like this is, this is awesome. And I was like, how the hell did he like got in touch with all these people? So, so that was pretty awesome. Well, no, the fact that you took the time to listen to the entire podcast is a huge honor for me. I know it was the first one I did was very long. It was like you said, over three hours. I think I had 10 plus guests yeah. um, on that one. I was lucky enough to have Thomas Hauser. Uh, I had Kella Fasana from the New Yorker. I had uh, Dr. Nitin Sethi, who was the actual ring doctor that night for Joshua Ruiz. Yeah, yeah. Um, I talked to a bunch of people in production. 
Um, I talked to a bunch of people who were there working because it was such a huge event and I really wanted to break it down from all the different angles. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why I called the show ask the experts because I wanted to look at it from the experts lens. So for example, the ring doctor is an expert at his field and he's in there. He's deciding if fighter a may have a concussion or can continue and things like that. And I wanted to look at it from their lens. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was the ep- that was episode one. What I what I didn't expect in a good way, a happy surprise, was that the show has evolved. Where I've been lucky enough to get top guests in boxing, the top names in boxing have been on the show. So I've been able to get experts, and then also get the top names in boxing. So it's been it's been a great journey. Yeah, it's it's crazy. Ever since then, you're like everywhere. Like maybe <laughs> because I'm following all of your accounts now or something. I don't know, but like I always see you. You always pop up with the biggest name in boxing. Like just like over the weekend, and it's just so easy for you. I'm like, how is he booking all these people so easily? Cecilia Breakers, you know, uh, Clarissa Shields. Just like over the two days in the weekend, you're just like freaking calling them and FaceTiming them, and they're creating <laughs> you're creating this freaking you know, Twitter storm fight between them two and you're like mitigating. And I was like, ah, this is awesome. This is like, well, you know, it, no, first of all, thank you. Uh, it's been a dream come true for me. And the, the way I do it, it's two things. One, I was a producer at HBO for a long time, as you know, um, almost 10 years. So obviously through that world, I have a lot of connections, luckily, and I've been able to tap into those. But I would say the biggest reason, which I think anyone could employ, it's just the hustle and grind, man, of just keep hitting people up, emailing, DMing them on social media, and just don't, you know, obviously you don't want to be annoying, but don't take no for an answer and keep trying to get those interviews. Um, and as long as, you know, you, you're well-researched, I believe, and if, if you are a fair person, you don't have, you know, an agenda, I think people mm-hmm. will be down to talk to you. If you see my interviews, I'm not coming in with a certain trying to, you know, viewpoint trying to uh, expose anyone or trying to do right. any gotcha journalism. Right. Even, even what you just mentioned, I was lucky enough the last two days to A, talk to Cecilia Breikhaus and then talk to Clarissa Shields. Um, I had no idea which way the Cecilia Breikhaus conversation was going to go. It just so happened that we talked about Clarissa Shields. Cecilia mentioned a couple things. I posted it on Twitter. Clarissa mm-hmm. Shields responded. Uh, and then as soon as she responded, I said, hey, well, can I get your side of the story? And so, nice. and so as of right now, I don't want to you know, toot my own horn, but Clarissa Shields has unblocked Cecilia Breakhouse. Okay, and so that's good. They're, they're speaking on Twitter. Um, if the ball gets rolling and one day that fight happens and, uh, you know, I maybe had a 1%, you know, uh, contribution to making yeah. it happen, that would be amazing because then we win as fight fans because we get to see, you know, a, a great matchup. So yeah. let's hope that happens. But yeah, no, it's, it's been really great. But uh, yeah, to, to answer your question, I think uh, it's because of the context, but also just, just hustle and just keep hitting people up. For sure, man. Yeah, and uh, when I see when I saw that Clarissa blocked uh, Cecilia, I was like, "That's exactly what you shouldn't do." You know, like don't block her on Twitter. What are you doing? Like, why are you like you know like just blocking the whole conversation? So I'm I'm glad that you said that she unblocked her. So and I saw the, some additional, you know, responses from Cecilia, and I was like, "Oh, you know, like it's it's starting, it's happening." Yeah. So I'm excited for that. It's, there's a lot of talk about Clarissa Shields, and then what do you think about her and Layla Ali? Yeah, so I actually, so in the conversation I had with Clarissa, it was an IG live and she was, she was uh, generous enough to give me about 45 minutes of her time, which was great. I brought up Layla Ali and I'll be posting clips of that soon and then I'm going to post the whole cool. interview on my podcast. Um, yeah, there doesn't seem to be the best relationship at all between her and Layla Ali. So Layla Ali, I think she's 42 years old now. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, of course, retired undefeated. And she said recently, I think it was on Sway in the Morning, that she would beat 
Clarissa Shields. Clarissa mm-hmm. Shields didn't take too kindly to that, of course. Um, so there's been back and forth. The question is, can they come to terms on the fight? Because Layla Ali is asking for $5 million um, to come out of retirement for this fight. That may be difficult to do. Maybe not. I don't know. It depends on the appetite for for. Leila Ali versus Clarissa Shields. That is a massive fight. It's a massive yeah. crossroads fight in a way. Um, so the question is, uh, financially, could it come together? I think both sides would be interested because it's a payday. It's a big fight. Uh, it's obviously a legacy fight. So let's hope it happens. I, I, I spoke to Clarissa about that. The, the one other point I will mention is Leila Ali said she offered uh, Clarissa to come spar with her and Clarissa declined. And I did ask Clarissa about that yesterday. Uh-huh. Clarissa said that she didn't feel like it was a genuine, it wasn't, hey, come to the gym at 4 p.m. and we can spar. It was more of an open type of um, offer that wasn't necessarily an actual call to action type thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why she feels like she didn't necessarily take her up on that because she felt like it wasn't as tangible of an offer to spar. So, um, right, because you you gotta like you gotta pay for your sparring partners. That's like a given. Right, exactly. I mean, that's, people don't know that in training camp, how expensive it is to, uh, to pay sparring partners and, and other people in the gym as well. And, and tough as well. Like if you're, for example, like Cecilia right now is at Big Bear, it's at Abel Sanchez's gym. And for them to get sparring partners, they actually have to bring boxers to Big Bear or go themselves. So it's like a lot of transportation, logistics and all of that. Like, it's not just like a, a flat fee. You have to like organize all of that as well for them. Oh, yeah. No, I've been up to Big Bear a few times. Obviously, as you know, the great Gennady Golovkin trained up there with Abel Sanchez for a long time. Um, Getting to Big Bear is not easy, right? You (laughs) live in LAX and you have a several hours journey ahead of you. Yeah. uh, Me and my team at HBO, we went there for a long time. We made the mistake once. I think we landed in LAX around like 4.30 or 5 p.m., which was Mm -hmm. like, obviously, it's peak traffic. And now we're trying to get up to Big Bear. I mean, it took hours. So it's it's out there. It's definitely Mm -hmm. out there. Yeah, absolutely. But anyways, this podcast is about you. This particular episode is about Quran Bhatia. And I'd like to talk about you and your life and, and do like a little profile on you because you're now every, everywhere and you're growing and growing. You're getting all these high profile uh, people on your show. And I feel like your listeners need to know more about you. And that's why, you know, I, I, I'm so excited to talk to you. So let's just start from the beginning. Where are you from and how did you start your career? Yeah, no, no. Well, just being able to chat with you is is a huge honor for me, man. I mean, I'm seeing the great work you're doing. So, so I'm, I'm really excited to be here. So um, for me, yeah, I grew up in, in New Jersey. Uh, the town is called Princeton Junction. Um, I've always lived in the Northeast and uh, I was always interested in film and TV. I loved it. I went to NYU um, and I was able to get a lot of producing work and directing work, editing work there through internships in the city, um, through my classwork at NYU as well. So NYU was impressive, you know, I was, I was like, cause this is like one of the best schools in the States and, uh, you know, you can like right away see like the professionalism of that and, uh, describe that experience. Like, I mean, you spent four years there, correct? Yes, correct. What was like, what was it like to, to, yeah. to study film in NYU? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really great. Um, being in New York city. I mean, I, I feel like that's a great place to be if you want to get into the production world, the media world. Um, and I was lucky enough to do that. It's, you know, people talk about NYU as, as I think it was rated the number one dream school at one point. And I can totally see why, because you're literally in the heart of the universe in New York city, right? It's a great place mm-hmm. to be. And there's a little bit of everything. So um, yeah, no, it's a great place to be. I think the biggest thing for me that I was able to take advantage of was like I said, getting internships at like, um, small, production houses, companies where I could kind of get my feet wet, jump in Mm -hmm. as an editor or producer, director and get my feet wet. Um, And there was a lot of opportunities like that. So I would say 
if you go to a school like that, try to take advantage of, of those opportunities. And obviously, if you're in any big city um, mm-hmm. or any place that there's production work, you can try to take advantage of that as well. Um, That's so, awesome. no, so yeah, you- so it was a great place to be. Yeah. Did you live in the dorm or are you like you commute from Jersey to the school? No, no, I lived in, I lived in the, in, in the dorm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Awesome. It, which was great. My, my freshman dorm was right on Washington Square Park. So that was, it was excellent location downtown. It's funny. I just, have you watched Sopranos? I, I've seen Sopranos. I haven't seen it beginning to end though. I, I have oh, to go back. Oh, you're missing out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to go that's, back. That's a shame. I feel like, how, how are you like eight years on HBO? <laughs> like you haven't yeah. watched Sopranos. No, I know. I know. <laughs> that's, that's, I have to, uh, I have to correct that. Yeah. But, anyways, but maybe during this, this quarantine, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Do it, man. It's my all time favorite. But uh, yeah, Meadow Soprano, the, the daughter of Tony Soprano, she, I think she went to NYU. That's I think, or maybe it's was Columbia. I don't, I'm not sure. But she was like at some point commuting from Jersey or something like that. Uh, I don't know, but just like a random thought. Never mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I think it's you know obviously people commute, but if you can obviously have the experience of being there, it's yeah. it's great. Yeah. Cool, cool. So, uh, what kind of internship did the the school brought you in? Yeah, yeah. So I found some internships uh, at a couple, like I said, small production companies, um, which was which was really great. I also was able to intern at Miramax Films, um, which which was uh, that's crazy. Like. I mean, Miramax, especially like, I'm not sure how they're doing right now, but, but like, that, that was what, like 2000? That was around 2007 uh, ish. Yeah. Okay. So, so they were still give, give, like give, having some hits there. Yeah. Um, no, it, they actually had, uh, at the time that I was there, I think it was No Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood, uh, uh-huh. which are two huge films. Awesome and I think movies. They I were saw, yeah. uh, being considered at the time for Academy Awards. Ricky um, Bardin right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, with the coin flip, right? That scene is great. Um, so I think it was it was definitely a good time then. Uh, I just watched last night. I watched The Gentleman by Guy Ritchie. Oh, uh, how was it? Uh, I, I actually it started off a little crazy and like there was a, mu- a bunch of different things going on and I was yeah. like I was like am I you know am I missing something? It felt yeah, yeah, yeah. but I felt like it really came together in the second half where I was kind of glued and I really enjoyed it. And that film, uh, I believe was also uh, produced by Miramax. So it seems like they're nice. still in the game, still doing um, big things. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was lucky enough to do that all do- through school. And, and you mentioned New York city. So since that time I started college uh, in 2004, I believe it was, and I've been in New York city since then. So I guess it's been 15 or 16 years now that I've been in New York. That's a great city. I mean, I've been there, I think, three times, and uh, it's a crazy one. I mean, but, like, I feel like that's my dream city to live in eventually, like, being New York where the things are happening, you know. I think it's awesome. But uh, how did you know what do you want to do? Like, okay, you've started film, but, like, you're doing, like, particular tasks, right? And how did you know what do you want to do and what exactly are you, were you, like trying to get into once you were doing that yeah no it's a good question and first of all yeah new york's great i mean i also love the city that you're in toronto is great there's so many different good neighborhoods and restaurants and has a lot of personality and it's it's also another yeah uh, absolutely i love toronto yeah you know you look at your setup man you look like you're ready to go you know (laughs) Uh, yeah man um but yeah so to answer your question no i think it's a good question because i think a lot of people probably deal with that right especially after school it's like what do i what do i want to do um so for me I tried a bunch of different things right after school. I was doing freelance editing. I was trying to do a you know startup business. I was I was just getting my hands dirty and trying different things. 
And uh, I did that for about a year or so. And then I kind of had the moment where I was like, okay, let me, let me take a second and think about what do I really want to do. And growing up, I always loved combat sports, always loved combat sports, boxing, mixed martial arts. Um, you know, I love sports in general, like we all do. I love, you know, all of them, but specifically combat sports, uh, I, mm -hmm. I really, really enjoy. And of course, I was film and TV uh, was another one of my passions. So, you know, that whole storytelling aspect of it. And I said, you know, where would I want to work ideally if I could? And at the time, HBO, of course, is known for quality content. You mentioned Sopranos and the, the list of shows goes on and on. And then Combat Sports, they were covering boxing at the time. So that seemed like a perfect fit. And lucky, mm -hmm. you know, I was lucky enough to uh, apply for that job and, uh, and get that job. And that was great because that was uh, about over eight and a half years um, getting to work on the documentary series called 24-7. So tell uh, us more about it. How, how do you actually got into HBO? Like, how did you get that dream job? at HBO. Oh, well, I mean, that's like we talked about in, in terms of getting guests. I mean, you got to hustle and grind. So I applied to the position online, nothing special. And, uh, -huh. uh just kept trying to email people, talk to people, connect, you know, make connections. It was a, a long interview process. It took a few months. Um, there was many wow. interviews. Uh -huh. uh, I think I met with like 11 or 12 different people at some point uh, in terms of the interview process. So just applying and, and at the same time, keeping myself busy, keeping myself creative, working on things. Um, But yeah, I would say I would say just uh, just applying and going for it and trying to connect with people there. And did you apply like directly through like I mean they have a sports division at HBO, right? HBO Sports. And what what was your position? Like what's the part what was the department that you applied for? Yeah, yeah, it was so it was in HBO under the sports division. Um HBO Sports. The position I started in when I first started was called a production associate and then I worked my way up to a to producer's position. Mm -hmm. Um And yeah, being there, I was lucky enough to work on 24-7 documentary series. We, of course, did live boxing, uh, which was mm -hmm. great. So I got to travel around the world, work these live events. Um, we did features. We did quick turnaround things, working with all these fighters. It gave me a lot of access and allowed me to be that, that storyteller, you know, producer, mm -hmm. writer, director, and the storyteller of why these fighters are interesting. Everyone has, all these fighters have such a great backstory. Mm -hmm. um, and so it allowed me to do that, which was great. Yeah, you've done uh, really great 24-7 ones. Uh, Amir Khan was pretty good. Like, I, I, you know, I was really memorable. I think the fight was versus uh, Canelo, if it's fine. If Correct, I'm not, if, yep. yeah. yeah. So that, I remember watching that. Like, uh, yeah, it, it was like right pretty much, I was still new to boxing, but I remember watching that before even I started, like sort of associate myself with boxing industry. Right. Like that was one of the 24-7s. Like that was one of the fights that I was actually taking seriously. Like I was preparing for it. I was watching it, so... It's it's funny that now I'm talking to you after after all these years, you know, it's been like what four years now? It's crazy. Yeah, since that fight, I think that was in 2016. Um yeah, yeah. yeah no, that was I was lucky enough to be in uh Amir Khan's camp field producing and directing. Uh -huh. uh, I was there for a few weeks. Um we, and that was just yeah, super exciting getting to see work with him in the gym and we have our team of uh people shooting and audio and everything and then being able to interview him on a daily basis. Um do, you know, we get to spend leisure time with them and see their family, see what makes them tick. Right. Uh, and really lean into that. We even do things that Uh, whatever that fighter is passionate about, whatever makes them tick, we like to follow them. So for him, obviously his religion uh, is a big thing. So we got to go with him, uh, follow him to the mosque and, and have him uh, meet his community. He's a right, hero. Right. Yeah, I remember, I remember those shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So I, you know, if you look in those shots, you can see me there. Cause I was, you know, field producing, I was, you know, uh, trying to make sure that we get all the footage we need, trying to do some on the fly interviews where you just put a camera up. It's not, not a traditional sit down, but an on the fly where you just ask right. them a few questions, um, in the moment, in the scene. Uh, mm-hmm. and so asking him and asking other people. So it was definitely a very memorable scene because as I said, you get to see what, uh, what these people are, these fighters who are preparing mm-hmm. for this huge event, uh, what make what they're passionate about, and you get to show their, you get get a peek into their world. So, it, you basically you were behind the camera, right? You were like a producer, you were like trying to tell the story and all of that. But however, you were still not really on camera, right? You said like you can have a sneak peek. Of it. However, right now you are always on camera, and you are actually, you know, commentating fight, fights. Uh, how do you say step by step or yeah, play by play, play by play. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So it's funny, like, were you expecting to be on camera like this? And uh, obviously you're super photogenic. So you probably were thinking about that during the, your HBO years. But like, how did that come about? And how did you decide to like, okay, it's time to step in in front of the lens? Yeah, no, that's, that's first of all, thank you. Uh, that's a very, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good question. So like I said, I always love the storytelling aspect of it. And uh, as a producer or director, as you said, you, you're behind the camera, but you're able to work with the subject and ask questions and tell the story that way. And then you can write it, you write a script and and create the uh, documentary. Your storytelling. When HBO, at the end of 2018, they made the strategic decision to no longer cover boxing. Uh, they had covered it for 45 years. Um, it was time for me to think about my next move. What did I want to do? And I, as much as I love storytelling from behind the camera, I decided that for the first time, uh, I wanted to pick up the microphone and, and storytell from in front of the camera, um, being mm-hmm. able to ask the questions directly, uh, to, to these subjects, whoever they may be interesting people in this world. I, I do a lot of combat sports, but I also do interviews outside of combat sports. I remember your interview with the former Time Warner uh, CEO. His name is escaping me. But yeah, like Dick Parsons. Cool to, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. Was a, and, that was a cool one. Like, I like the setup and I like the view from the window and all of that. But then, like, you were on camera and all of that. So that was pretty awesome. Yeah. So, like, for example, with Dick Parsons, I was lucky enough to interview Dick Parsons. He was the former CEO of Time Warner, the former CEO of, of Citigroup. He worked right. with the Clippers. He worked with CBS. I mean, the he has fixer. had a great career. The fi- Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I was lucky enough to interview him at his office. Um, if you want to talk about high pressure, I had about five minutes to set up the, the sit down. Wow. And, and I want to talk. I want to talk about this kind of logistics for you a little bit later. But like, just to give a background for the CEO, like he he's called the fixer because whenever the company is struggling and it's it's in crisis, they bring this guy in and he just pretty much gets this particular company or corporation out of this crisis. So he literally fixes the problem during this high intense moments of of, of crisis. Exactly. No, they bring him in. He says he's a better crisis manager than he is a steady state manager. He has a very calm demeanor. Um, and so when I was lucky enough to talk to him, I wanted to ask him about what, what, how does he do it? Right. They mm-hmm. brought him into, um, I believe they brought him into uh, Time Warner when they had done the merger with AOL and it wasn't going the way they wanted. So he had to kind of fix that. They brought him into Citigroup as the CEO. I believe it was after the, the 2008 financial mm-hmm. crisis. So these are tough situations to step into. Um, and so if you want to see that video, it's on, it's on my YouTube page, youtube.com backslash Karan Bhatia. And um, I wanted to ask him about that and also his habits, uh, you know, what makes him successful. And so I've always, I, I, like I said, I do interviews in combat sports, but I've found industry leaders to be uh, to really interesting. I also wanted, I also am looking at tech disruptors, people who are coming into an industry, technology, maybe like a new startup, trying something new. And I also 
uh, I'm hoping to look into like the immigrant mentality. People yeah. come here from other places, all the hard work that they do, all the great things they're doing. So, um, combat sports, I, I definitely love, you know, doing play by play, like you said, and interviewing people, but I also like to do uh, a little bit outside of sports, interesting people, interesting personalities. You know, it's so great. I, I sort of have the same passion right now. And the reason why I started this podcast is is basically do the same thing is, uh, well, not the same, but mostly like just to interview people or talk to people. For the longest time, it was just my close friends, but now I'm sort of uh, diversifying with like industry people. But lately it's been just boxing simply because a lot of my friends are in boxing, but I also aspire to talk to like entrepreneurs and, uh, and people who actually change the industry. And so I'm really looking up to you and, and I'm trying to learn as much as possible from your interviews and, and just like your style, which I will have more questions about it uh, a little bit later. Like we're going to go a little meta on like production because I'm, sure. I'm impressed by the production quality that you have. Yeah. Where, wherever you want to go, man. And, and I would say for you, I think a, you're doing a great job. And I think the biggest thing that you're doing, is you didn't just sit on the couch and say, wow, wouldn't it be great if I could talk to people and put up these interesting conversations? You, I remember you emailed me about the microphone that I use. Now you, I can see your setup looks great. You, got, you, you, went, you took the steps, right? You took the action to actually make it happen. And right. If you think about, this is your what episode? How, what are we on? For, uh, for your I think it's 42. 42. Think about how much you've learned from episode one. A to lot. Episode it was crazy how much I'm learning. Like, and I'm, I just recently switched to video. Like I never had a video, but like, this is, I right. think my episode number five that I'm doing video. And then all of a sudden I'm realizing, Oh, like now I understand why people need makeup. Now I understand why people need yes. hair. Cause I look at myself like, ah, my hair is all messed up. Like my, my color would be like all inverted. Like you need people to like watch you. And then like there's editing and the, all, exactly. all of that I have to do myself. And I was like, wow, like there's like, there's no wonder it, it takes a team of production people to actually like handle this business. Oh so, yeah, it, it does. And the fact that you're doing all of those jobs, just like I am doing now, when I do an interview, I'm setting up the interview, I'm doing the audio, I'm doing everything, I'm editing it. Um, when I was at HBO, we had a large production team that used to do that. Um, but just the fact that you're getting your hands dirty, you're learning so much about the yeah. process and making it better and better every time. And I think that's the key because like I said, if you just have the idea, wouldn't it be great to do this? You're not going through those, that step-by-step -step execution and learning each time. Exactly. Um, there's so, yeah, much right. more to it. There's like a podcast hosting services like, whoa, what is this? Like, what do you need to pay for? Like, and then the whole equipment. I, I used to have like a USB mic, you know, just put it in the center. Like my podcast with Tom was like, with Tom Loeffler was like just this shitty mic in the center. We just put it like this. And I'm like, ah, I wish we, we could have done like a video like as I used to, uh, as I'm doing right now. Like this microphones, like the, the, the Shures, the standard. Like I had to yeah. learn about the XLR cables, like the freaking mixture, like all of that equipment. I was like, wow, like I need to learn about all of that. Uh, but yeah, well, since we're talking about it, well, let's, let's go a little sure. meta and talk about equipment. And then, then I want to go back to HBO and, uh, and ask like sure. how, how that deal got finalized and, 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 and your, and, and, and their, closure basically in terms of the HBO boxing but first sure. let's talk about equipment like how once you started you know venturing out on your own what I'm seeing in your videos right now and by the way do you hear me well because I, I hear some some clicks but just want to no, make you sure sound, that you sound great perfect yeah. all right cool um I see that you have like when you do the actual sit downs I see that you have pretty much three different angles or maybe it's uh I don't know, how, how does this work? How many cameras do you have when you do the interviews? And like, what kind of equipment do you also carry with yourself? And yes. who's helping you? 
Yeah. So um, it's like I said, it's, it's very different from the HBO days In the HBO days we'd have uh, two to three cameras um, sometimes more and we'd have a whole team. So now that I'm doing this on my own in terms of building my on camera profile, um, well, I've been lucky enough to have been featured on some outlets. I've been featured on camera on Fox sports, bleach report live where I do play by play, as you mentioned, Pluto mm-hmm. TV where I do a debate show. So, but a lot of my work is just me finding people and putting it out there on my YouTube channel, my podcast. So, so like booking, yeah, yeah, and and then being able to ac- actually execute the production and the interview. Um, but to answer your question, so if you're doing it like one man band style, like in terms of the way that you're talking about a more recent interview that I've done, um, yeah, sometimes I do two or three cameras. So what I like to do is uh, you want to get one obviously on your subject, and you want it to get meta. So we'll get meta. Not well, so we'll get a little bit more in the weeds about what you want to do. So. I would say get one on your subject. I like to do like a medium shot. If you watch any type of interview show, like 60 Minutes is always like a, you know, that's been around forever. And you can Mm -hmm. kind of see, watch 60 Minutes, see what they do in terms of the way they set up the shots if you're someone who's trying to do this. So you want to have one of them looking at your subject, right? You're not putting the camera right in front of their eyes where they're necessarily looking into it. Um, You can do that for a documentary, but if you're doing an interview, you probably don't want to do that. So you want one where your subject is looking at the interviewer right? You want to leave some, some room in terms of uh, headspace, right? Because you want to kind of have them looking at that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to want to have your key light. You're going to have lighting, right? Right. Uh, and you're going to want to have it, something important that you brought up was you mentioned the audio that you had in one of your early interviews was just a microphone in the middle of the room and you two are far away. That's not going to be good audio when you go exactly. back and look at it. Now it's passable for like a lot of things and you can... Uh, the good thing about the environment we're in now, so many things are raw, right? If you look at social media, if you just go up to someone and, and you have your iPhone, mm-hmm. uh, you can get good content and that could blow up and go viral. But if you were trying to do a higher production, you're mm-hmm. going to want to invest in lo- what they're, what's called lav mics. That's where you, you clip it onto your shirt yeah, and it has the wire. Um, if you have a mic like you have right there or I have like right here, mm-hmm. um, that's going to increase your, your audio and, instead of just doing like the mic that comes on the Mac. Not mm-hmm. that it's not that it's bad, but if you look at the positioning of it, it's just further away. It's not as good as picking up the sound. Right, and you have to always make sure that you're next to it. Yes, you can, exactly. You really exactly. Move if you have a lav mic uh, that you can clip on, then it's going to be here, and where you know if your subject moves exactly. around, it's going to follow them. Um, so I would have one camera on your subject. I would have another one on the interviewer, in which I've been doing. I put it on me. Now, mm-hmm. if you look at sixty minutes or or any other show, sometimes you'll notice what's called a dirty shot, which means the subject or the the person interviewing you'll see like a part of their shoulder maybe talking to the other person that's optional you can do that uh-huh. but what's what's good about that is then you kind of see the dynamic where you see a little bit of one person the behind, from behind and then you see the other person looking at them right it's optional you can either do uh you know shots of each person or you can you can get a dirty shot of that and then in terms of what your question about the third camera i usually like to have a third camera which is like a wide shot Mm-hmm. Um, where you can see maybe more of the background. You can see both subjects talking to each other. You can see the chair. And what I personally like to do, it's personal preference, is my wide shot. I usually like to have it called it, what's called a dirty shot. And what I mean by that is you can see the production equipment visible. You might see a light in the corner. You might see a lav mic or if you have a boom mic mm-hmm. as maybe a backup audio, you can see that as well. Mm-hmm. I just think that gives a cool little behind the scenes type look and yeah. sets the scene a little bit because you know, you're, you're sitting there, you're talking to someone. Um, but now you can kind of see like, Oh, all the work and stuff that went into this. And Gives all you the a wires. Sense that you're actually in the room. Exactly. Yeah. Like a fly on the wall type of, exactly. of shot. So 
in terms of the cameras that I like to use, that's usually my three camera setup, one on the subject, one on the interviewer, and maybe like a wide, mm-hmm. a wide dirty shot. That would be my like fantasy to actually like if if I can like continue doing this podcast to do it in that exact format and just invite my guests to like a studio and like sit them in the chair and just have these conversations. Uh, that would be like I feel like the goal for me to have that format. But then I'm thinking like all the editing that could take. Imagine like I'm struggling with just like a webcam right now, like just to make sure everything looks good. But then you have three cameras and you have to combine the shots and then. As far as I know, the audio goes separately, right? Like audio is, you need to like actually put the audio on the cameras. It's not like cameras have the connection right away. Yes, correct. No, so it it depends how you're doing it, obviously. But if you're going to, you know, you could put like a shotgun mic like on top of your camera and then Uh you could feed the the audio into your camera. But if you're going to do lav mics, you're probably going to do that into what's called a recorder and Mm -hmm. that's going to be where your audio is. So the good audio will be separate from the video clips. And then you, um, you want to make sure that like your lips are moving in sync with the audio. Like that's right. So you have to sync it. So I would say uh, two things real quick. One about what you said about how you would love to try it. I don't think you're as far away from trying it as you think you are because you're doing this on a webcam right now, yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. Do you, and I'm guessing you own like a smartphone, like an iPhone or something. Yes, correct. Okay. So now you have two cameras already ready to go. So mm-hmm. if I was you, you already have your mic and your, your headphones. I would, if I was you, you could set up right now in, in your living room, one camera is on, your webcam is on you. Your Mm -hmm. iPhone is going to be shooting the other person Mm -hmm. and your audio, you have one mic, you only need to get one other mic and then you sync it in post and you have a two camera interview, right? It's not as hard as you don't want to overcomplicate it. Eventually you'll want to up the production quality, just like you've done on, on your podcast and all the work, but just to get your hands dirty and, and to get the workflow, I would suggest trying that call a friend over, set up two chairs, webcam Uh on one guy, iPhone on the other and, and, and sync it in post. And, okay. uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. And, uh, uh, I, and I wanted to, sorry, to answer your question. The second part was about, uh, how to sync it in post, right? Mm-hmm. So if, uh, if you use the Adobe creative cloud, um, Adobe premiere is, is a great program where you could take the three different videos that you have from different angles and your audio. And there's a thing called create. If you highlight them all, you do a thing called create multi-track sequence. Mm-hmm. And it will do the work for you where it will sync the camera angles and the audio. And then what you need to do, what you, all you need to do is you can watch each angle and just switch between each one. Okay. Um, so that's a really, really helpful tool, especially if you're new to syncing because otherwise doing it manually, it's a little bit harder because you have to find the sound waves and match them up. Right. Um, which is a little bit more of a, a tedious process. Um, but if you can do the multi-track sequence and sync them up, um, that'll definitely make it easier. How long does it take you to actually like after you conducted, you know, got your footage, footage, like to actually edit everything and have a prepared product? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good question. I think it depends on what you're trying to do with your, with your, with your final product. So for me, it, it depends. I made, for example, some of my interviews that you see on my YouTube page, I've done like a video session like this and I can just throw it into premiere. I can add the names cause I want to, you know, add the, um, you know, some graphics about who each person is. Mm-hmm. I can, uh, maybe add some music and a couple transitions. That's easy. Right. And then you just throw it up on YouTube. If you want to do something that's more raw like that, cause you're just getting information out there. Mm-hmm. That's the process. Now, if you want to do something that's a little bit more of like production value, um, that's going to take longer, right? That could, I mean, that depends on, on what you want to do with it. That could take days or weeks because, you want to add, let's say you want to add music. Uh, if you're talking to 
a fighter or really anyone, you might want to add B-roll on top of it. So as you, as the people are speaking, you can add footage, what's called B-roll of something Mm -hmm. that they're talking about. If it's a fighter, a lot of times it's training B-roll, right? So you have a fighter talking about his preparation and then you see him as he's talking, you see him hitting the heavy, you know, the uh, speed bag or heavy bag or whatever. So I would say it depends on, on what your final product is that you're looking to make. And, And if you're doing like a feature, which I used to do a long time, a long time uh, at HBO was you want to write the script. You're going to have voiceover. You're going to have music. Um, you're going to have you know professional graphics, B-roll, things like that. So that can take obviously a lot longer. Yeah, yeah, man. It, it takes it takes a long time. I mean, I, that one of my experiences was like, okay, when I have the audio, like it t- I'm actually working with the audio. Like I'm trying to make it cleaner. I delete all the sounds. I make sure there's no clicks. Like that was like my first experience to actually learning to how to edit audio and it's just it's not that you just it's not just like a recording there's a lot of things that you need to do with audio to make sure that it's cleaner and then with the video it's the same thing um so definitely it's uh it, it takes a lot of time but the, the cool thing is what i what i realized is that i'm really getting a kick out of it like i really like it and it's it's something that i i feel like very lucky like wow like because i was thinking like when i'm gonna where when will i find my passion when well will i actually find a hobby and like now this is a hobby and it's pretty cool you know so it's it's interesting you put you're putting in putting in so much work but and you also sort of enjoying it and i haven't experienced that before i mean i mean i was an accountant for like six years so i was like crunching numbers in the office that's pretty much what i was doing and i was wasn't particularly passionate about it but this thing was like really interesting and the fact that you are learning stuff it's also amazing yeah i mean i think that it sounds like you found your passion in terms of being creative so i think that's great i think you should follow it and i completely agree with you when you really start to enjoy it get your hands dirty and you start messing around you start editing and you look at the clock it's three hours later right and you're like where did where did all the time go exactly Um, and i completely agree with the other thing you said which is so we talked about the podcast that I host. If you do just audio, okay, now it's just audio and you have to work with that and you have to try to make it sound good and make your edits. But when you add video, that's so many more things that are so many more <laughs> elements. Now lighting exactly. is in there and the framing of the shot and mm-hmm. everything. So that adds a whole new layer. Um, but with, the whole, with that, there's also new opportunities to edit it and, and kind of you know, make a new different type of product um, and add to it. So I, first of all, I think it's great that that you're found your passion with that and that you're, that you're executing on that. That's awesome. Yeah, man. Loving it. So let's go back to your HBO years. Sure. Um, speaking of Cecilia Breakers, I think her fight was the last fight that HBO boxing actually Correct. showed. Yes. Um, how was that for you? And were you anticipating that HBO, because you were so involved with HBO boxing, were you anticipating that they will eventually stop that? Was it sort of like looming over? Like, because I remember back then we were thinking like, okay, what, when are they going to schedule new fights? What's going to happen? Like what's their new next new project? And they were, they weren't announcing anything. So publicly HBO weren't stating anything. And I'm not saying like, I'm not asking you to disclose anything like that. It's private. Uh, but like in terms of your personal feelings, like were you ready for that? Were you prepared? Yeah. You know what? I think it was, I think it was pretty shocking to all of us because I think there's always ebbs and flows with boxing um, and there's different people who come into play for a long time. HBO boxing was the absolute top, top standard in, in boxing in terms of the production value, in terms of the fights they had Uh, at at one point Showtime started spending a lot of money and they were kind of neck and neck. Mm -hmm. Um, But you never really thought that they would stop covering boxing. They did it for, as I said before, 45 years. I mean, it's a long Mm -hmm. time and Mm -hmm. obviously HBO is synonymous with, quality content mm-hmm. you know with so many shows but also with boxing right with the, yeah. with the boxing i think when fighters are at a young age 
they aspire to be on HBO, right? That's part of, you know, if you're in a gym, like a kid training, he wants to one day be on HBO. So yeah, I, for someone who was there during that transition period, I would say it was very shocking. Um, I think it wasn't, it wasn't that it was looming where we were like, oh, this is definitely going to happen. I mean, I think one thing that definitely rocked the industry uh, was when Top Rank decided to go to ESPN. And that mm-hmm. meant we lost fighters like top pound for pound fighters like Vasily Lomachenko, Terrence Crawford. Um, top Rank obviously has so many great fighters. And when they left HBO to go to ESPN, that was like, okay, that was a moment of like, whoa, all right. So, you know what? We still have fighters, but that's not going to be the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I guess the writing on the wall moment came when it was right before Canelo Triple G. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that was in September of 2018. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I remember I landed in, uh, Vegas for the fight and I was getting ready to go to the production truck. And there was an article that popped up and it said, Canelo Alvarez is a free agent in terms of his network after this fight. And Gennady Golovkin is a free agent. So mm-hmm. I'm like, wait a minute, if we don't have Canelo and triple G, I'm reading these news reports and I'm like, if HBO doesn't have that, then who do they have? You know, they had like Dimitri Bivol, which is great, but is that enough to sustain a network? Probably not. So, right. I bet that's um, a funny feeling when you're sort of reading something from like a, a, a news source and it is directly related to your work and to your income and everything. It's like, what the hell is happening? Why am I reading about this in the, in the news story? Exactly. Exactly. No, that was a really weird feeling. And then on top of that, we had to do the event and, and, you know, produce this fight, this massive fight, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was, that was a little eerie and weird. Um, and then eventually, of course, as we know, they made the decision um, to move on uh, from that. And, uh, you know, it's everything happens for a reason. A lot of things are blessing in disguise. For me, on a personal level, we talked mm-hmm. about that was my first time where I decided to pick up the microphone and, and I've really found my passion with that and I've loved it so far. So that was a blessing in disguise for me. Um, and I think also it opened up a lot of opportunities for other networks and platforms, right, to get into boxing. You see Fox Sports now having mm-hmm. PBC with the huge deal and the huge success that they've having. The Zone obviously has the top fighters yeah. in the world in America. I mean, Canelo, Triple G, Anthony Joshua, on and on. Um, you still have top rank ESPN going strong. Showtime mm-hmm. Boxing is still in the mix. So it opened up um, more platforms. And if there's more fans in the sport because they can access the sport in different places, for example, on Fox or ESPN, uh, see high-level fights, maybe that's probably a good thing. For, actually, no, I'm sorry. That's definitely a good thing for the sport because that increases eyeballs, hopefully gets more people interested. So um, I would say you, know, you can see it in a, in a lot of different places now. Looking back at it, do you think, like in your opinion, it was a good thing for HBO to stop it. I mean, of course there's, I mean, it's not like they just decided not to do boxing because they didn't like it. Right. I mean, numbers probably would support the, you know, at that time numbers would support the the decision to um, stop, you know, doing boxing. But do you think like it was actually the, the way to go? Do you think maybe they should have like maybe restructured something? What's your opinion? Should have HBO boxing? Yeah, still be- you know what? I, I feel like it's, it's a hard question to answer because we don't know yet. I think maybe that, you know, it'll take some time to figure out if it was the right decision. I guess it depends on what is important to you in terms of dollars and cents, in mm-hmm. terms of branding, in terms of things like that. So, I mean, I think, I think people are definitely going to miss the HBO quality that was there because I was there. I know how much work went into, you know, the preparation. We would start our preparation weeks or months before events. Um, and mm-hmm. we, we had such good people working there. Uh, especially our on-air announcers. I mean, the great Jim Lampley, Max Kellerman, um, Larry Merch, and all the all the great announcers. 
that I was lucky enough to, to work alongside. Um, so you lose that, right? Cause that mm-hmm. brand and that established, uh, brand is gone. So those right. people, you're not hearing necessarily from those voices in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something that probably, you know, was maybe something to hold on to, but in terms of dollars and cents, that's a business decision that, uh, someone with the data would have to make. And, and that, I mean, there's certainly a case maybe to be made for that. I think the case was that HBO obviously is a subscription model, right? You pay a monthly fee, $15, I believe it is, and you get HBO. I, I believe what was reported like in the news and in the media and stuff was that whoever was doing the data at that time felt that people weren't necessarily subscribing just for boxing. So if that's Mm -hmm. your business model to get subscribers and your data is telling you that people aren't subscribing just for boxing, then I guess the money that you're spending into boxing isn't increasing subscribers, which isn't helping your bottom line. Right. So if that's the data, then that's the business decision. Mm -hmm. Um, it, but it is unfortunate because there's so many great people who work there so much good quality, uh, programming, um, that you lose out on. So I think, I think it could go, you know, it's, it depends on so many things and it's really hard to know if that was the right decision or not. Mm-hmm. What do you think about what's happening right now in the industry business-wise, uh, in particular with DAZN? Um, do, do, does DAZN have a, a future at all? Like right now, it seems questionable whether they have enough subscriptions or not. Or I mean, th- that information is, is really not as disclosed. But as far as like great and you know, huge fights, they're sort of stagnating on that, especially right now with the whole deal with coronavirus. Do you think the zone has 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 have a real future? And by real future, I mean like boxing is just the beginning for them, and they will transition into acquiring an uh, NHL and and uh, NFL franchises too, like televised. Yeah, no. So I think uh, the zone definitely has a huge bright future um, in a lot of different ways. And uh, so subscribers, of course, in America, we don't know the exact numbers, but if you look at other places in the world and at least my understanding from what I've read or heard in podcasts and things like that is that the zone is, is really big internationally. It's um, big in Canada. It has all the, it only does not have an NHL, but NFL, the football games are the zone. Yeah. And, and I think boxing. it's big in Europe, uh, like in Italy yeah. and things like that. And I, I've heard in Japan, it's really big, uh, mm-hmm. like over a million subscribers in Japan and in a lot of places in the world, it's kind of like ESPN, like it's the place for sports. Mm-hmm. So at least my understanding from the outside looking in, um, well, I've been lucky enough to do some freelance work with them, but my understanding, uh, outside looking in is really their, their way to get into America as it's almost a startup in America, but a, but a more established company elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And the way to come in was obviously boxing is a fragmented sport because there's so many different promoters. There's so many different networks. It's not like it's like one league, like the NFL or MLB or whatever. So it kind of makes sense that that's a sport that you would come into, right? Because you can find some fighters, sign some fighters. You may have to overpay a little bit, but you still get those quality fighters. Mm-hmm. And to your point, of course, there's no fighting now, but there's no major sports now. And it's not, there's no network that's, that's showing sports right now, right? So, right, so it's even, um, play, even field for everyone. It right? is, it is. But it's obviously going to be tougher for them in terms of America because if you are, you know, like a startup type of entity, even though they are established elsewhere, mm-hmm. um, that might be tough to keep subscribers right now because what are people subscribing for right now? I mean, that's more of a global economy type of issue that we're dealing with, with everything, right? I mean, there's restaurants are losing money, movie theaters, every, you know, everything, um, uh, mm-hmm. because, because of the, the, the way things are right now. Um, but I definitely think if they could keep it going, it would be successful because they've signed these long-term deals with stars in our sport, Canelo Alvarez, uh, triple G, Uh, you know, Anthony Joshua, and there's so many more. Mm -hmm. So if you have those guys under contract, uh, I think people are going to watch. I guess the question is going to be, 
the pricing model does $10 a month if you buy for a year right. or a monthly, I think it's $20. Does that mm -hmm. work or do you need to somehow get a variable pricing model maybe one day in the future where you don't necessarily have to spike up to the $80 pay-per-view, but maybe you can do like a mid-level type of thing. Mm -hmm. um, that's just speculation on my end. I don't, I don't know, but I'm just saying maybe, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for a more variable price model in the future. Right. Personally, I think 20 bucks per month is too much. I don't think, especially after this financial crisis, if, if we're actually going to get it for sure. Uh, it's, I don't see it's, it's being viable. I'd say the standard would be maybe $14.99. That sounds like something that can be sort of put on the, put on your out of pay and forgotten about, but 20 bucks, like it, it really hits you. So I, I hope they can lower it, but you know, who knows? It's, it's up to them to decide in terms of what their margins are. Um, but you know, they have to, they have to survive this and uh, we'll see how it's going to get. How do you and think? You, yeah. Let me ask you this. You as a consumer, would you be okay with a lower monthly fee less than let's say $10 or whatever. But then if there's a huge event, you pay more for that, not necessarily $80, but some kind of variable amount as a pay-per-view, would you prefer that? over a flat $20? I, you know, ever since I was in the United States and in America, I never had a cable TV. I was always like an internet and uh, I never in my life bought a pay-per-view. And it's just, I think it's too much. But actually, so I don't think, me as a consumer, as a new one, as a millennial, as a young one who is like, you know, just starting to get some disposable income, uh, just dropping 80 bucks. I would only do this if I'm throwing like a huge party at my place and then okay. I'm just investing in that. But just like for me and my buddies just to watch it only if it's shared, you know, just right. by myself. But that's just me, you know, maybe that's because of probably my income is not just at that level where like to 80 bucks ain't it, like it's not anything for me. So maybe in the future, once, you know, I'm more financially successful then. So it depends. What I'm saying is it depends on the consumer. What level, what target of the consumer are you, are you getting it? If you're, if you're targeting uh, a millennial in his 20s, like will he drop, will he or she will drop like 50, 60, 80 bucks on a pay-per-view? Yeah, I don't know. But the subscription model is way to go. Their the whole thing about pay-per-view is dying. Have, have like this theory has, you know, the right to be. But, you know, lately we've been seeing some pay-per-view are still being relatively successful. Tyson Fury uh, and uh, Deontay Wilder, I think they did 900,000, which a lot of people predicted more, but uh, a lot of other people that I'm following actually predicted exactly that. And at first it seems like, so-so, eh, right? Under a mil. But as far as I'm hearing, the, the networks actually exactly estimated that. And, and it's now considered to be a successful pay-per-view. So... Yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to produce the countdown show, which was Tyson Fury versus Deontay Wilder 2. Oh, cool. nice. It was on Fox and ESPN. Um, and I, I got to do that as a, as a freelance producer. It was great. Um, and that fight had all the storylines in the world that you'd ever want yeah. in a big fight, right? You have undefeated guys. They're charismatic. Um, they're both champions. Wilder, the WBC champion. Fury, the lineal champion. Yeah. Um, you have two networking arms supporting them, Fox and ESPN. Um, and that's, you know, they're, like I said, undefeated in their prime, charismatic, good, good talkers. So what else could you possibly want? One's American, uh, one's yeah. from Europe. So the fact that it, it's, it's interesting, like you said, pay-per-view, is it dead? I mean, if, if your definition of dead is that it has to make a million plus buys like it used to in the heyday of Mayweather, Pacquiao, right. De La Hoya, whoever, then okay, then I guess it's dead if that's your definition. But if mm -hmm. your definition is that pe hundreds of thousands of people will buy this fight, 
a lot of people will watch it in bars and restaurants and people are still paying money for it and it can still be a financially successful model, then it's definitely not dead. Um, I would say, I would say like the only people who can say if it's dead or not are the ones who can see the margins. If that's, if there is an ROI, which is significant, that makes it worth it is still there, then of course it's still alive. If it's like getting diminished, then you know, you have to worry. So we don't know, like no one can really say until you like, they see the numbers and uh, those are, I guess, not disclosed. <laughs> yeah. Bottom line, no one, no one knows for sure. But I think, I think overall, what I would like to see personally is just a variable type of cost for everything along the board. And obviously that takes data and research and people to analyze. But if you look at the zone, $10, if you subscribe for the year 20, I think if you do monthly, I believe ESPN plus is, is four ninety nine, or you can do a bundle with Disney plus. I think it is and Hulu for maybe 12 to 15 bucks. Um, if you look at Fox, a lot of the, the fights are on Fox, regular Fox, you know, cable, or you can do a pay-per-view. I think they need to, everyone should come together at some point and make it more of a variable thing where you have pay-per-views, but a pay-per-view doesn't necessarily mean 70 or 80 bucks. It mm-hmm. could mean something less, $20, $40, $50. Right. And your subscription model could also change in that way too. So I think if people can find out those, those variable costs and people can analyze those, I think that'll be better for them in terms of the revenue they're getting. And I think that'll be better for consumers because when you hear a fight's on pay-per-view, you don't immediately say like, oh man, now I got to pay $80. You're like, all right, that's a good fight. That's how much it costs. That, mm-hmm. That's reasonable. I could do that. I believe in other places in the world, pay-per-views are, are, are like that. Like you could get like a nice, you know, $25 pay-per-view or something like that. What do you think about YouTube uh, boxers on the zone? What's your opinion on that? Yeah, I, okay. So uh, I've done some interviews with YouTubers who are uh, coming in as boxers. Well, I did an interview with Adam Saleh who did a charity boxing match. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an amateur fighter actually. And of course we know, um, Jake Paul, Logan Paul, Jake Paul, Logan yes, Paul. I. Yeah, of course. And I, so I did an interview actually also with another YouTuber, Josh Peters, who snuck in the fake, um, Ed Sheeran into the Logan. Oh Paul. yeah. Yeah. I saw yeah. that one. <laughs> that was cool. So I interviewed him about that prank. Uh, cause I thought that was, that was really funny. Um, and it was just a cool story about how he snuck in this fake Ed Sheeran into the arena. Oh my God, that um, so that's cool. on my YouTube page if anyone wants to see it. So, um, to answer you, I think it's a good thing and I'll tell you why I, think anything that we can do to get new eyeballs and more people interested in the sport of the bo- in sport of boxing is a good thing. So I've always said this and I've been consistent. I host a debate show called standing eight count. It's on Pluto TV. And I've said this a few times on there. If you are a YouTuber, it takes work to build an audience to get millions of subscribers to, to, and you know, this firsthand, I know this firsthand, how hard it is for people yeah. to, to get subscribers, to put out consistent content, oh, yeah. um, to build a community. And YouTubers have spent time and energy doing that. They've, and they've built their audience. So now they're taking their audience and they're bringing them into the boxing world to subscribe to The Zone or watch their fight wherever their fight may be. I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that's a good thing because they did the work to bring their audience. Right. And now you have new people who weren't interested in boxing tuning in to watch. And what that does for a promoter or a network is say, we have this new audience, let's promote our other fighters. And I think the zone did that. I think they, you know, like with a Ryan Garcia or Billy Joe Saunders or whoever you Mm -hmm. put other people on, you know, Devin Haney, you put these people at the events, you put them on undercards and now their social media following, I think someone tracked it, their social media following went up because they were just associated with this event. So I don't think there's any reason why um, 
putting fighters who bring their audience. I think they've earned that right. And at the same time, they're not necessarily taking away a spot from someone else. It's not like Jake Paul or Logan Paul is going to go in and fight Manny Pacquiao. And that means that we're robbed of the Manny Pacquiao Thurman rematch or whatever, just as an example, right? That's not what's happening. Uh, They're for the most part, at least what I've seen, they're fighting each other. So they're not taking away opportunities from anyone else. So I don't really see a downside in that. So I think YouTubers and boxing is a good thing. I completely agree. And I, you know, disagree with the boxing purists who are always sort of uh, crap on the, on the YouTube fighters and trying to like uh, diminish their, I, you know, it's, it's a great point when you said that YouTubers are actually working very hard to create content and to create basically what the old timers would say, good TV. And it's extremely hard to be consistent like, consistent like that. And uh, I feel like the, the boxing media should realize that it's that they are providing entertainment and with my during my experience like with boxing in the last i would say two three years is like i'm slowly realizing well i already realized that that boxing is not just sport it's first it's entertainment boxing makes money professional boxing professional boxing makes money when it's entertain when it's entertaining to watch and, right. and that's and that's why triple g is so uh, so famous because his fights are so so great you know so entertaining it's like so dramatic uh, and with other fighters as well, Deontay Wilder with the, his knockout pi- uh, power, you know, Floyd Mayweather, uh, uh, Tyson Fury, you know, the showmanship, that's, that's what matters. And with YouTubers, we can see that they were putting in that they were growing their, their audience and, and now they can basically demonstrate it to the, to the world of boxing what the subscription numbers are capable of. And I, I'm telling you, I would say the most successful project to this day in terms of return on investment would be uh, for the zone would be actually YouTube fights in terms of like bang for the buck. Yeah. If you look at the numbers, I think it was one of the most highest streamed fights on the zone. If not the most, if you looked at the YouTube highlights, I mean, it has over tens of millions of views on just the highlights of that. So I don't see at all why that's a bad thing. And to your point, I, I do think obviously boxing is a sport. We love it. We love even, you know, me, me and you, since we follow this sport closely, we sometimes love technical fights, but if you want to draw the mainstream audience, right? You want entertainment value, you want action, you want knockouts, you want come forward fighters. And to your point, I think Triple G is is really like the epitome of that because my understanding of this story, and I know you spent time with Triple G, so correct me if I'm wrong, is when he came over here, he had more of the Eastern European technical style. And it was Abel Sanchez who said, hey, if you want to be a popular draw in America, you're going to have to be a lot more, uh, less technical and more straightforward, uh, more of a power puncher. And he developed that style. He became a destroyer. I was there for the rise of triple G. Uh, I was at, I think one of his first fights on American TV. Uh, and I think it was against Proxa. Um, I was there live working that fight and he knocked out his opponent and then he continued to, to have that rise and he became what he is now. He had to, he had to earn that himself. And, and with these highlight reel knockouts, with these knockout streaks, um, knocking out people who have never been stopped or knocked out before. And he was able to do that. Um, and so he earned that right of becoming that attraction. Uh, and there's so I more, think more to it. I would say it should be a boxing marketing business case study because Triple G's exactly. team really achieved something unachievable for an Eastern European boxer to to get the attention of the Mexi- Mexican consumer, Mexican audience with the Mexican style. You know, Mexican, it's a branding, right? So right. they rebranded, uh, you know, the, the brand of this uh, Eastern European, you know, uh, quiet guy, whatever. You know, there's there's obviously the promotion side of it. There's the looks, there's the, the cool, like, one-liners that everyone understood, like remembers, you know, big drama show, good boy, and so on and so forth. And then there is the whole Mexican forward style, Mexican style. I remember the whole 
all, you know, on Facebook, everyone was commenting all the time, Mexicans for Golovkin. And, and just to, to realize like the scale, the guy from Kazakhstan is now a Mexican draw. Like that's a case study. That should be studied. How did, uh, you know, everyone, how did the, his team achieve that? So it shouldn't be really underestimated how, what, what sort of a, a great, first of all, what a great fighter Triple G is. And then on, on top of that, what a great promotion uh, was around Triple G and is around Triple G right now. Oh, 100%. I couldn't agree more. And I think it was exactly what you said. It was it was authentic in terms of who he was. So that that kind of broken English, that charming English that he had and the way he spoke. Um, but then being able to also do it physically and, and the you know his training and being that destroyer, that knockout guy. Um, Absolutely. And just, just becoming the legend of Triple G. And coming here uh, from Kazakhstan, who where probably a lot of people here no Kazakhstan for like what for like Borat maybe like it's not like it's not like fighters and stuff were necessarily well known in America from Kazakhstan or at least boxing or at least for boxers so he was able to come from that from relative obscurity and become one of the faces of the sport one of the top fighters in the sport so I I definitely 100% agree with you that that should definitely be looked at if you're a new fighter coming into America and you want to make a name for yourself Um, I think that's that's one great way to to do it the way that Triple G has Absolutely. But going back to the YouTube and social networks, sure. wouldn't, wouldn't you say, you know, boxers should really look, look, take the social media more seriously? Like I'm talking about, look at what Tyson Fury does right now. His morning workouts, his videos, his all of that. He is embracing that. He's such a good TV right now, WWE and all of that. So whoever's managing him are doing such a tremendous job on, on promoting his brand, including Tyson Fury. And like, I feel like not enough boxers are are paying attention to that, especially during this huge hiatus of the coronavirus the situation. Like, I don't know. Do you think boxers are, like, do you think people who are managing, like, I, I don't want to, like, put this whole burden on boxers because when you are an athlete like this, and boxing is a tremendous sport where you, I don't think, it, I think it's the hardest sport in the world. So I wouldn't be surprised if, they, if they're only uh, focused, if they're, like, serious about sport, only on training. But, I'm, like, people around them, do you think they're realizing that, hey, you got to, like, up your social media pro- presence? Oh, 100%. I, I completely agree with you. I think uh, obviously now more than ever because it's a downtime in, in sports, obviously. But mm-hmm. there's no reason not to connect with your fans, engage with your fans, grow your audience, right? As a fighter, as an athlete. Obviously, boxing is tough, as we know. The training camps are long and grueling. I think it's the ultimate form of competition. You're literally going in there to to incapacitate your opponent. And that's that's mm-hmm. mentally, that's crazy. That's physically, that's crazy. Um, but I, I agree with you. I mean, I think uh, fighters should engage with fans. Luckily, I've been lucky enough to get a lot of interviews with fighters. I think that's a good way to get yourself out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think putting out content. And to your point, it's not necessarily that you, nece- you if you can hire like a crew to follow you around, that's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's so accessible nowadays with social media. I mean, you put on your Instagram story of your workout and people are inherently interested in that. If, if you're a fighter who performs at the top level, they want to see what you're up to. They want to see what your life is like, especially if you are a Tyson Fury heavyweight, you know, one of the heavyweight champions of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, I definitely think that that's a great thing that fighters should do. They should definitely right. do more so of I'm, it. I'm just wondering, like... Other fighters, like whose whose job is it to tell that to fighter? Whose job is it to do it? Is it promoters or managers? Like whoever the, are they realizing? Is the industry itself is like okay? We need to like get in that mindset because we're missing out on the market. Like yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's a good question. I mean, if you're, it depends on how you set up your career, right? If you're a fighter who kind of handles everything yourself, that's mm-hmm. something that you want to do yourself. There's no reason to not 
pick up the phone and pick up your iPhone and do an Instagram live and engage with fans and maybe create more fans that way or mm-hmm. put out content. Um, if you have a team about a manager, uh, an agent, whatever it is, yeah, you, they should definitely be advising them. I mean, if you look at Ryan Garcia, I think he has, well, uh, he's a, Ryan Garcia is a fluke. I mean, it's pretty boy, you know, and all of that, like it's easier like when you're more of an extrovert and all of that. So yeah, with him, he, it, it's working, right? Yeah, well, he's so what does he have? I think he has 5 million followers on Instagram. Now, right. I, I wouldn't say it's a fluke. I think it's someone who's putting out content, but then also backing it up so far in the ring, which is great. I think he's putting exactly. himself out there, right? He's not, he's not, um, not. Right, that's not to disrespect Ryan Garcia. I'm actually like a fan of Ryan Garcia. I like, yeah. I like his style and all that. I'm, I'm really looking forward to see how he's developing. But also, right. I'm not dis- discounting the fact that, you know, he has that personality, right? He's, he, he is that kind of guy, but I know like for like from a personal experience that a lot of boxers, they're very introverted and they're not into this freaking like, let's hold the camera in front of my face and like do like a little chat, right? And that's what I'm talking about the camera. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about the managers and promoters because the fighters need a little push, a little bit of like yes. help and assistance because they themselves, like they're not going to do it. Even for me, like it's, I don't want to like be in the front of the camera and like try to like impress the world. I'm shy, you know, like it's, it's. And imagine that for fighters. Imagine that for like an Eastern European fighter or something like that who, do, who, does, he does, who doesn't even speak English and feeling like insecure about it. So that's yeah. what I'm worried about. No, I, I understand. That, yeah, right. No, that makes sense. I mean, I guess it's that if, yeah, if you want to create your own audience and give yourself more opportunities, then as a fighter, you're going to either have to do that or like you said, you could hire someone to do it. Or if you're a manager, you could say, hey, we're bringing in this team. We're going to put together uh, like a, a vlog series on your day. We're going to put it on YouTube, on social channels that's probably never going to be a bad thing, right? I don't think people are going to look at that and say, oh, I don't want to see this. I think people are going to see it and say, wow, that's cool. I'm learning more about this person. I'm connecting with them. And now when they fight, I'm more likely to watch it. So that's a good thing. If you also look at fighters like uh, Amir Khan, for example, he has a big following on social media. He's posting all the time. Mm-hmm. And that's benefited him and his career. I would say that's another good case study in terms of how to connect with fans. Because if you look at the fights and the opportunities he's gotten, he got the Canelo fight you mentioned. Uh, he fought Billy Dib. I think it was in Saudi Arabia for, they reported it as $7 million. I mean, that's a great financial deal mm-hmm. for a fighter. Um, and he was able to do that because he's earned his audience, right? He's built his audience through connecting with them on social media, through putting out content. Um, I think he was on a reality show uh, in Europe and things like that. So he's made himself accessible. And that has created a larger audience, which creates more opportunities. So I don't think there's any reason not to do that if you're a fighter. And if, to your point, if you're kind of more shy or things like that, part of our business is you have to market yourself. Part exactly. of it is entertainment. It's not exactly. just get in the fight and do a technical fight. And that's what I'm afraid that uh, some of the prospect boxers are not really getting. And like, that's what managers and promoters should like tell them. Like, hey, like, it's not just sport where you need to win. You need to provide that showmanship. You need to provide that entertainment. No, 100%. I, I spoke to uh, Steve Cunningham on my podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things I said, you know, when you, he's not retired, but I said, when you look back at your career, anything you regret, he says that he felt like he should have gone out on a limb more, maybe challenged more people up openly and publicly, right? Yeah. Um, so you don't want to be a fighter if you're listening to this and you're, you know, an up and coming fighter. You want to look back and say, oh, I could have done more with my persona, with my personality, right? You want to kind of put yourself out there and engage with fans and put out content. So, hopefully managers and people like that who are around these fighters pick up on that. And hopefully we see more content because we're boxing fans. We're nuts. We want it. The more you can give us the better. We want to see this stuff. 
Absolutely. So, Karan, going back to your uh, business right now, what you're what you're doing, and I see that you're not just doing interviews with boxers, as you mentioned. You're doing the um, the eight count debate show. You're you're doing the um, I always forget not step play by, by step, play play by play, play. <laughs> <laughs> uh, commentating, and and I feel like I don't know, like what would you be what would you like to focus on the most? Like what's, what's, or, or you're like, you're, you see that there's a synergy in all of that. And, and you're, just, I, yes. I want to see where you're going to be in the future, because I can predict with 100% certainty that you're going to grow and grow exponentially from here because you know, you're just such a great personality on camera. What well, do you want to do? First of, first of all, thank you so much. I mean, being on your platform, that hopefully will be a good jumping off point for me. And uh, this is great. So you're too kind. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say, uh, no, it's a good question. I love play by play. I, re- I really, really do. I, I was lucky enough to work alongside the great Jim Lampley for many years at HBO. Um, my, my job is sometimes the stage manager or producer. I would sit literally right next to him for some of the biggest fights in the world. And I was just able to learn through osmosis. I still think he's the best play by play announcer in the world. So I get to do that now on a much smaller scale. Uh, I do the undercards for Triton MMA. It's on Bleach Report Live and Pluto TV. I really, really, really love play-by-play. I love telling the stories. Uh, My favorite part of play-by-play is when I get to meet the fighters maybe the day before at the weigh-in or a fighter meeting, learning about who they are, what's what's, uh, at stake for them, and then you see them perform now and you can see how that plays itself out in terms of the family that's there watching them, what's motivating them. I love that and I love telling that story. I also love interviewing. Um, and all this stuff, you know, doing the podcast, doing the debate show, things like that. So to answer your question, what I would like to do ideally, I mean, I would like to do something maybe similar. If you look at what the great Ariel Helwani is doing, I'm a big fan of his, been lucky enough to chat with him from time to time. I I really love what he's doing in terms of interviewing fighters and telling their stories. Uh, I also really like what Joe Rogan does. And what he does is he has one foot in the combat sports world. He commentates on the biggest UFC fights of all time. And he has his podcast, uh, which right, I, right. I love the long form part of it. I love, uh, you know, I'll go to the gym and throw on like a nice two to three hour podcast with an interesting subject, listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, or even the dialogue that we're having here. I, you know, I feel like this is really interesting and hopefully people can get value from it. So I would love to do something like that where I could do play by play on one end and then also be able to be a storyteller maybe a long form storyteller on whatever medium that would be by doing interviews with interesting people with disruptors, innovators, um, things like that. So that would be, that would be my ideal goal, uh, in terms of what I'd like to, what I'd like to do. That's so cool. I, I'm really looking forward to following your career and, and hopefully because you're my inspiration. So I, I'd like to follow your footsteps, footsteps as well. And maybe like getting some, you know, life lessons from, from your path and, uh, hoping for your mentorship in the future too. Oh, absolutely. Hey, that's, first of all, what you said is thank you so much for that. And, uh, I'm a big fan of yours. Uh, you know, I know when we met, we clicked and we've been chatting, like you said, for a long time. And, um, I think that what you're doing is, is really exceptional because like I said, there's so many people who are sitting on the couch with an idea and you're choosing to execute. And there's so much that goes on in terms of the execution, in terms of the learning process, uh, the humility that you have to do. You have to humble yourself a little bit. <laughs> I've, I've definitely done that and continue to do that every day. Um, and so I, I would say, I think you're definitely on the, on the right path in terms of what you're doing. Um, and if, if you're seeing anything that I'm doing that's helpful to you on your journey, uh, that's a huge honor for me. And if I can ever help in any way, you know, give advice or anything like that, I'd be more than welcome. That's open to anyone who's trying to uh, get into this career. I'm still learning. I'm still, you know, getting my foot in the door, trying to build my on-air profile. Um, And I know it's a long journey and a long way to go, but I'm personally, I'm really, really enjoying it. It's something you talked about earlier. 
when you find that passion, I think it was Jeff Bezos of Amazon who said, mm. it's really a gift when you find that passion, right? Because yeah. you're spending so many time, so much, so many of the hours on it. And if it's at your passion, you really, really love it. And you, like I said earlier, you look at the clock and it's, wow, it's six hours later. Where, where did the time go? But you're so engrossed in something you love. Um, so I love, I love being on air. I love storytelling. I love all that. So I've, I've been lucky that I've been able to find that and been able to do that uh, with some success so far. Absolutely. 100%. Quran, how can people reach you? How can they find your content? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you can visit my YouTube page to see a lot of my, my interviews, a lot of my on-air work. That's youtube.com backslash Karan Bhatia, C-U-R-R-A-N-B-H-A-T-I-A. Um, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at uh, Karan Bhatia. You can follow my podcast. It's called Ask the Experts. Uh, that's on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, it's A-T-E underscore podcast on Twitter and Instagram. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Ask the Experts with Karan Bhatia, uh, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So uh, the best way to yeah, see, find me, you know, if you're watching this, please, I definitely want to hear from you. Uh, if there's any, anything I can do to help anyone who may be on their own journey, I would, I would love to do that. So connect with me, Twitter, Instagram, um, YouTube, and, uh, and yeah, I hope to, to, to uh, engage with the fans and talk to people, definitely. And that's, that's yeah, that's where people can find me. Quran Badia, everyone, uh, the great guests and just a nice friend. I, I really appreciate our friendship. And thank you so much for coming in and uh, doing this distance call with me for like more than one hour. So I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much and good luck with everything that you're going to do in the future. Oh, thank you so much. Anytime. And I got to have you on my, my show next, my podcast next. <laughs> sure. If, if, if you feel like it, I don't know if I have anything valuable to say, but absolutely. I will be happy to. Oh, no, I learned so much in this conversation. So I, I think you have a lot of value to add. Don't sell yourself short, man. So I would, I would, yeah, definitely would love to do that. Sure. All righty. <laughs> I'll All right. believe you. <laughs>